Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I am the host of the Bible in Life, and thanks for joining me on this episode. Before we jump into the content, just a couple of notes for you. The first is, if you are looking for some guidance on how to read the Bible well, I've got a free ebook on my website, johnwhitaker.net, johnwhitaker.net. It's a 30-page ebook that gives five strategies for reading the Bible well and hearing what it's saying and making sure we're listening closely and understanding what it's saying. And then it gives five strategies for heeding the Bible well. That is putting it into practice. And what are some things we can do to help us really absorb the scriptures into our life and let them become a part of us so that we can live them out. So it's just called Bible in Life. And that's right there on my website at johnwicker.net. Completely free. Just put in your name, email, you'll get access to it right away. So I wanted to let you know about that. Uh, and then also, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to those of you who make this online ministry possible by your generous support. Uh, literally, this could not be done without you, without your prayers, without your financial contributions. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry, the Bible and Life podcast, the online courses, the listeners commentary is making a difference. And I really don't know how many people, thousands of people all around the world and so I am incredibly grateful for you and for your support. And if you want to join that team of supporters, you can do so again at johnwhitaker.net and just click the give button. It'll take you to a page where you can set up a donation right there. So thanks a ton for your support. All right, on this episode, we're going to do something different. Uh, I think over the course of the last five years of the Bible in life, I've only done five or six interviews with other people. And uh, we're going to do one of those today. Uh, a, a new friend of mine named Matthew Bates, who is a author and a scholar, um, teaches at Quincy University in the Midwest. And he has written a number of books around the theme of faith and salvation and the gospel. And just in the last month has released a brand new book called Why the Gospel? Why the Gospel? And it's a real readable, accessible uh, study of what, what problem does the gospel really solve? Why was the gospel really necessary? What is the gospel really aiming at? Why the gospel? And that book uh, has so many uh, themes that overlap with things we've talked about on this podcast, things I've written about in some of my writings, that I, I was like, man, I really would love... Uh, to get to know Matt a little bit more myself, but also for you guys to get to know him as well. And I would love to recommend to you this book, Why the Gospel. Also, there's a little book put out by um, Renew called The Gospel Precisely that uh, Matt has written. And then he's got a book called Gospel Allegiance and Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And so he's written just a handful of books on this theme it's an important theme for us to think through about really what is the gospel, why does the gospel really matter, and how does the gospel change our life. So with that in mind, let's jump into this discussion with Matthew Bates. So welcome, Matt, to the Bible and Life podcast. I don't do a whole lot of interviews typically on the podcast, so you're like one of six or seven people ever that I've interviewed. Uh, typically, it's just me talking, but I'd love for you, if you would, just uh, give people a little bit of a feel for who you are, a little introduction to yourself. So why don't you tell folks about yourself a little bit? Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. And I'm a professor of theology at Quincy University, and I've been here 12 years, and so I get to teach uh 
young men and women uh, about God to the best of my ability. Teach classes on Western religion, so introducing them to Christianity, Judaism, Islam, but sometimes uh, courses on Christian spirituality too, or church history, but my bread and butter are the Bible courses. So I love doing that, and it's a, a huge part of my life. Got seven kids. Um, they keep me busy as I'm, I'm busy uh, chasing them around as they play baseball and volleyball and do various musical endeavors. Um, so a uh, family man and uh, married to the lovely Sarah. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's just a little bit about me. I can tell you more about my spiritual journey if you wish, but a Protestant teaching in a Catholic context, which is interesting. Uh, but uh, maybe less interesting than you would imagine is our school's fairly <laughs> split anyway. Okay. Yeah. You're, uh, did you grow up in a Christian family? Uh, yes, but it was not a church-going family. It was more of a private spirituality. Um, as my mom, especially, you know, taught me Bible verses. I prayed a prayer when I was a young child. One of my first memories. Um, and so that was a framework, but we didn't end up getting involved um, at a church until actually a, a, a family tragedy with with regard to a family friend. Um, as uh, our friend Doyle uh, ended up uh, being in this horrible accident in a mill that paralyzed him. And I actually tell the story of that in um, the book, Why the Gospel, a bit. Uh, but anyway, through this story um, of Doyle's encounter with Jesus through a chaplain at the hospital, my family ended up getting involved uh, in a church. And so it was there that I received baptism and uh, really began to begin to process what it would mean to be a Christian. And so uh, it was an independent Bible church. That's so that's my background, okay. uh, just briefly, and a lot long life journey after that. But that got, <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. got me started. Yeah, yeah. And your original uh, academic, I don't know, career or experience wasn't in theology or ministry. You studied physics, but then along the way, somewhere along the way, you ended up deciding to get uh, some formal theological training and do what you're doing now, huh? Yeah, so I was, you know, I, I got that physics degree, but I lost interest in it. And that is part of my story. I took a New Testament class that really changed my life. Uh, so that's part of the reason I want to be a New Testament professor is because I found it can be transformative. God's word is powerful in that way. Yeah. So, yeah, as I was studying for a Jan term course, doing nothing but reading the New Testament for three weeks, like um, God's word uh, kind of crept more thoroughly into my heart and uh, helped me to correct some sin problems that were going on in my life, uh, helped me realign my life uh, with what I would consider to be an allegiant posture toward Jesus, something that was fairly lacking up, um, before that time. And uh, that really, um, yeah, through that experience, then I finished the physics degree and had fallen in love with Sarah. So I wanted to stay in Spokane. So I, I, I looked for work as an engineer. So I worked for two years as an electrical engineer in Spokane, Washington. And then uh, and then I, uh, we went to seminary, did the formal uh, academic training at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I did a master's degree in biblical studies. And then we ran out of money. So we went back to Northern California, um, where I did um, some forestry work and then engineering work again. And uh, through all of that, um, yeah, continuing to learn and grow, but then eventually the PhD at Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a curious question, more on a personal side for me. Uh, Regent College, you studied under Gordon Fee. I did. I love Gordon. Yeah, he's one. I've never met him. I've I've read a ton of his commentaries, a lot of his work, listened to a lot of his lectures, and uh, just seems like, you know, not just a scholar, like a genuine love for Jesus is the oh, way it for seems. Sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's shown through in his teaching, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's his 
big commentary on Philippians in the Nikon series where he talks about being up on an island, you know, north of Vancouver or something mm -hmm. like that, working on that, finding himself face down on the floor, prostrate, just worshiping Jesus in the midst of writing this commentary, mm -hmm. which is that's well, the he way would, he would sometimes allow uh, students to go um, use his home whenever he was away and, uh, you know, for retreats and whatnot is gorgeous home. Yeah. On one of the van one of the islands. I don't remember. Was, I don't think it was Vancouver Island. I think it was one of the other small islands, but yeah, yeah. it's like faces out to the entire ocean, a phenomenal, wow. uh, phenomenal home that he was in. Yeah. Wow. So good, good awesome. opportunity to think about God's glory, I suppose. <laughs> I imagine so. So, so your latest book is why the gospel, um, and it's focused particularly on not the what of the gospel, but the purpose of the gospel. And it seems in a lot of ways, it's a culmination of a number of your works over the last five, six years or whatever. So kind of in a nutshell, what's the heart of why the gospel? What's it really getting at? What's the, the goal of the book? The book was written out of a intense concern for the church and for the church's lack of engagement with what I consider to be the true biblical gospel. And I think as I have worked at trying to help the church reframe the gospel over a number of years, it became increasingly apparent to me that what the church struggles with is not so much the what of the gospel, but understanding why God would even give the gospel in the first place, because maybe we have some mistaken ideas about the fundamental purpose of the gospel. So I, I thought it might be a good tool to help uh, as part of the whole reframing project as uh, you know, I want, I, I'm obviously deeply invested in the gospel in terms of both what it is. Um, but maybe I, as, as my experience showed working with pastors, working with other church leaders, uh, working with other academics that maybe the, the harder, heavier lifting had to, had to be done around why questions rather than what questions. Okay. And, uh, Kind of in a nutshell, like you say, okay, what's the problem we're solving here? Why, why, why is this important? Why the gospel? Why does it matter? Right? Like, how did you, yeah, how would you, how would you kind of boil that down? Well, we can answer that in two ways. On the one hand, like the world needs the gospel. It's still God's good news, obviously. It's good news for the people in the church. It's good news for people outside the church. Um, but also in our current cultural moment, the nuns and duns, um, you know, they need to, we need to find ways to uh, bring people who are totally rejecting Christianity. They've never been involved with it, the nuns, but also people who have like, oh, yeah, I tried that and it, it didn't work for me. Or, you know, I, I came to believe other things or whatever it might be. We need ways, uh, tools to try to bring them back in. So I write with a heart for those people. Uh, but in terms of the, the the deepest why of the gospel, I guess if I was to get my thesis into a quick nutshell, uh, it would be that we have tended to have very self-centered ideas about the gospel. The gospel is primarily in most of the context we probably all were raised in. The gospel is primarily what can I get out of it in the sense of what do I need if I'm on the on the wrong side of God? I don't want to go to hell. Um, I want to be rescued so I can go to heaven so that I need to have my sins forgiven so that transaction can take place and I get to be with God forever. Um, notice that gospel is all about me, right? It's all about yeah. what can I get out of the gospel. Um, that's not the biblical gospel. Right, right. No, I appreciate that. I've I've had that same conversation with so many people where we've tended to frame up the gospel as, you know, uh, you know, I'm a sinner. Believe if, if I believe in Jesus, you know, I'll get my sins forgiven. I'll get my ticket to heaven and I can go be with him someday when I die. And that's yep. a very common version of the modern evangelical or Protestant gospel that seems rather deficient in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
And yeah. So I, I, in the book, try to help people approach it from a less self-centered point of view. Um, and to think about like, let's think about what God's problem is. Let's say like, why does God want to save us? Um, I think the obvious answer is because God loves us. You know, that's obviously true. And like a deep rationale behind the gospel, like who would ever want to discount God's incredible love? But like, I think that like we, we again tend to abstract that and like, and take the away from God's purposes that God wants to bring humanity. Like God has a creation project. And as part of that, he wants the, like he begins with a garden and he wants to move uh, all of creation and civilization to the new Jerusalem, to a city. Like there's an intent of development within his creation project. And so God um, places humanity and in, initially in his creation project for specific purposes. And that like salvation involves then or, or rescue or the gospel itself involves in some way helping humans to do what God made them to do. It's not just about what we get out of it. It's also about what God gets out of it and about what creation gets out of it and what we get out of it, right? right. Those are all interconnected and helping people to see like the, the salvation problem God's trying to solve is how that humans can that like, like re-embrace their calling so they can distribute God's glory for their own sake, for the sake of creation. And that this is ultimately what brings God to his highest reputation. God gets the most honor also as humans are restored. So coming to understand that framework is a key goal in the gospel. Yeah. 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 And when you say distribute God's glory, what flush that out a little bit, what are you thinking of? Or what do you mean by that? So humans are um, made in the image of God. And as the Bible reflects around that idea of what it means to be made in the image of God, we have some key verses, you know, Genesis 1, 26 through 27 would be key verses that speak about us being made in God's image. But the, the main purpose behind that is to rule on God's behalf over the various creatures, right? And then as part of that, we also safeguard and steward, I think, uh, creation would be another way of thinking about that. And as the Bible reflects about it within the Bible's own self-life, like we have the psalmist's later reflecting on that Genesis story. For instance, Psalm 8 speaks about how, like, you know, what, like, why would God pay, pay special attention to humans? Like, what is a human being, right? Um, and as part of that, like, the, as the Bible continues, like, the psalmist says, like, that God crowned humans with glory and honor, and this is part of their ruling vocation. So uh, one way of thinking about this that's biblical would be that God creates us to distribute um, the fullness of who God is to every dimension of creation. And we can speak about this in, in terms of glory. Now that sounds all churchy just to say the word glory, right? And we sometimes have vague ideas about that, but it actually is connected to reputation um, and honor. And so things that we fame even would be a, um, a very common. So both in both in Greek and in Hebrew, like the Hebrew term kabod, uh, like has to do with weightiness or a weighty presence, Right. And then the Greek corresponding word to that doxa uh, has to do with reputation. Um, so, yeah, God's honor and reputation needs to be like um, present in the world so that God is being regarded as God um, as humans worship him so that they then can uh, treat one another properly and treat creation properly so that as we see one another, like if, you know, if John Whitaker is actually being allegiant to King Jesus, there's a certain glory that is attending all of that, that um, makes makes it such that John Whitaker is who God made him to be. Um, and then if I see that, um, then my glory is actually refreshed by looking at you because you bear his image. 
Like I'm actually seeing God through you if you're if you're imaging him correctly. So what happens is if, we, if humans collectively stop doing that, then we never see God's glory in one another. And we never and and all of creation ends up falling into decay. Yeah. So um, the gospel is about re- reversing all of that, like a restoration of glory. Yeah. Yeah. And uh <clears throat> I think it was, wasn't it Irenaeus, rough paraphrase, who says something like, nothing brings God so much glory as a human being fully alive? Yeah, I don't remember if that's Irenaeus uh, particularly, but um, yeah, but it sounds like something Irenaeus would say. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the idea, though. Like when a human being is living the way God designed them to live, functioning the way God designed them to function, doing what God created them to do fully and completely for God's honor— um, it, it, it's good for the human being. It's good for the people around him. It's good for the world around him, as well as it brings God greater glory. That's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul describes the the gospel in second Corinthians four, four as the gospel, as, as the, the gospel of the glory of the gospel of the glory of, of, of the Christ, the image of God. I think that's, yeah. I think I got that right. It might be paraphrasing, but essentially he's, he's saying that it's the gospel that pertains to Jesus's kingship and that Jesus as King is the one who fully images God. Right. And that there's a glory transformation associated with um, the, the gospel itself. And this is something we just have not tended to think about very much in association with the gospel proper, rather the gospel is about dealing with the sin problem um, well, sin actually has a deeper problem, right? And that, that deeper problem is social and cosmic beyond just personal sins, right? right? And um, and God's in the business of undoing the harm that's caused by this dishonor, and so that we can have a great reputation among our among each other and also with God, right? Ultimately through the gospel. And so that's a, that's interesting. An interesting dimension of the good news is we don't think about it very often as something that restores our reputation. Like we all hunger to be to be well regarded by other people. Maybe we don't want to be famous, but we want to have a good reputation. And actually, part of the good news is that God is restoring that through King Jesus. It's not separate from Him. It's not about brand me, right? But it's about as we connect ourselves to him and his honor like devolves onto us, like as we become fully alive in the way that God intended, like we, we grow in our reputation. Now people in the world may not regard us highly. Like they may be like, you know, who are you? Uh, Just like they did Jesus, right? Like uh, as we, if we're actually imitating him, right. in his power and weakness, right. um, All they may see is the weakness. Um, and so we, we would expect that to happen, but nevertheless, with God, we're gaining great honor, um, and that one day we'll reign alongside King Jesus. And so the King is the one who holds us in high regard. And, uh, and ultimately then we will have that, um, that gospel style fame that's appropriate for our humanity, uh, within the, the restoration of God's glory. Yeah, no, that's good and, and important and helpful. You know, I, even thinking about sin, um, one of the ways I've tried to communicate, I feel like sometimes in the church we've taken sin and we've turned it into breaking arbitrary religious rules that were handed down from on high by God or the church or whatever, right? And you've broken those rules. And if I want to keep God happy, I've got to keep these rules. And one of the ways I've tried to help people know that sin is more intrinsic. It's more inherent than that. Like it's it's uh, it's like a, a car that's, uh, you know, I've, I actually... With youth, I one time actually brought a a, micro, a a lawnmower up on stage, and I put Hershey syrup where the oil is supposed to go in the lawnmower, and I put water in the gas tank, and you know it's clear liquid; it should work just fine. Right? What's going to happen to this lawnmower? Well, we've just ruined it, right? Well, sin is like that in some regards. It's it's a human being is designed to function a certain way, 
Um, it's designed to function the way God functions. God is, is truth. That's why lying is not just wrong. Lying is also destructive to mm-hmm. us, right? To our relationship with God. And I see that as kind of related to what you're getting at, that, that, that when, when Paul says that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there's this intrinsic nature of what it means to be human that is corrupted and corroded by our breaking faith with our creator going our own way and doing our own thing and that's sort of at the heart of what you're getting at in this your presentation of why the gospel Mm. yeah and so yeah paul speaks about us exchanging the glory of the god of god for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles right and so as we worship non-glorious images we come to be like what we worship we become direct bereft of glory Right, our glory ends up like being snatched away as we worship non-glorious things. So actually, when we begin to worship King Jesus, when we begin to intentionally see him, when we come and see and view him and see his glory, like we begin to be refreshed in our glory. And so that's part of the key to why discipleship and disciple making is 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 important to our salvation. It actually fits within salvation. It's not something extra like, okay, first I got saved and then I become a disciple. Like the path of, of salvation is the path of discipleship. It's the same path right. because we have to be fully healed. Like we have to actually see the king. And so it's as we see him and we begin to be transformed into his image, that's when all the fullness of the restoration that God has for us, uh, that's that's how it transpires, yeah. is through that. Yeah, by gazing upon him. That phrase you used in there, refreshed in our glory, and that shows up several times in the book. Um, again, flesh that out. That's just an interesting phrase. I and mean, my picture is like, our glory is getting charged up or something like that. I'm not sure if that's totally what you mean by that, but when you say refreshed in our glory, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think I mean by that, that we, you know, as we make bad choices, as we said, right. um, Mm -hmm. And the the harm that's introduced into the world through those kinds of actions um, as we worship idols and become non-glorious, right. That like our, um, there's a, a kind of natural dimension to like, I think as God created the world, God hands us over to our own disobedience is the way he frames it in Romans. Um, and so that as part of that, then we experience the consequences of our own folly, which involves a spiral downward into, um, becoming like the, the hideous idols that we worship. If we worship money and that's all we're thinking about all day, and that's what we're viewing, um, then are we going to be, how are we going to be shaped? We're going to, we're going to end up greedy. Right. If we're worshiping sexuality and all we're doing is looking at filthy images all day, then should we be surprised if we're like come to look like lustful creatures? Uh, We will. Right. Uh, Because that's the images in which we're worshiping and that we, we as we view it, we come to look more like that. Right. And so we have to be very careful about what we watch. We're naive about that. We tend to think like, oh, well, uh, well, that's just entertainment or what, you know, I'm just trying to get through the day and I just need to relax at the end of the day. We need to be very careful about what we put before our eyes and we need to be very intentional about it because we will become like what we worship. And the, the, what those what, what images do is they often ca- cast a larger vision before our eyes of what reality could be like. And so a lot of those um, images contain false ideas about what's true and good and beautiful, and it puts it before our eyes and suggests it's going to deliver the good life to us, but then it fails to do so, 
So we have to find our way again and again through scripture to put Jesus and his ways in front of our eyes and to see how good life could be if we lived the way that Jesus intended. We have to have this vision. So a part of the glory restoration involves like an, an actual, an active viewing that we need to actively and intentionally view King Jesus because then our affections can be changed. We can begin to have a, we can begin to desire new things. We can begin to desire what he desires because we're viewing him and we, we've caught, a, we begin to catch a glimpse. We're like, okay, now I see that I'm in this marriage relationship and it's been rocky and things aren't going well with my wife and my kids. And, you know, and I'm having all these problems with my family. And now I see like, if I was to obey Jesus's way, like how much more beautiful my marriage could be in my relationship with my kids. And we, and we begin to say like, I want that. Like I want the full human flourishing that Jesus shows me is the way. And so I think that's what I mean by glory refreshment, but it's also communal, right? As we have to see it in one another. Yeah. And that's how our glory, like, like is refreshed is partly as, as you're doing it. And I'm, if we're all doing that together, right. Then, cause I need to not just see it in scripture. I need to see it in you too. Right. right. And that's why that's why the church is so important to our salvation. Um, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the fundamental reasons is because it's through church that we see that we see one another's refreshing glory. Right? right. I see your glory as it's being recharged and you see mine. And then we keep moving upward together. And if we aren't in church, we don't have the chance to see the image of God in its process of restoration happening in the multifaceted ways it's happening around us. And we don't get swept up in the glory restoration that God's trying to bring about. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really good. And there's there's a lot a lot in what you just said. Um, uh, so when you say an active viewing, what are some ways you practice that? Like the act of viewing for the sake of restoration and refreshing and recharging, you know, the glory of God in you, like yeah. some ways you practice that. Yeah. And we're all different. And I think we should acknowledge that I'm of yep. a more scholarly bent um, and scripture has always been premier for me. Um, you know, and I realize that not everyone encounters scripture the same way, but listening to it um, over audio right, can be powerful. I'm just reading it, obviously, and studying deeply, trying to press into, okay, what does this word actually mean? Doing word studies. You know, we need both quantity and quality with scripture, I think. We need to just get a lot of the story into our bones on the one hand by just reading it a lot. And that also helps us to, to get to better quality because then we can use scripture to interpret scripture. But we also need to meditate and just dive down deep sometimes. And so sometimes I'll do that. I'll memorize scripture at, uh, upon occasion. Some of my most powerful transformative moments in my own life have been through scripture memorization. Um, so the, the word has always been premier for me. Um, but I think then uh, apart from that, service is important, right? As we actually like, try to find out if Jesus's ways are true, partly through doing, right? If we get involved with um, serving in a variety of ways, whether that's teaching, which has been my most common way of serving, um, as it fits my my gifts and my nature, I suppose, yeah. or whether that's volunteering at a homeless shelter or whatever it might be, right? As we do, sometimes we come to experience that King Jesus's ways are indeed good, right? Like I thought that as I went to serve, that I would find myself drained and that I would have no life. Well, I am tired. But I find it's like a life-giving tiredness, right? That like shows that something is at work here that's Holy Spirit work. Like that this power is not coming from me, but from God who in some way is behind this work and is refreshing me and refreshing other people through it. Like I feel such satisfaction in it whenever I'm actually following the Spirit's lead. Um, obviously worship, um, premiere too, right? We need yeah. to 
we need to get outside of ourselves and stop worshiping ourselves for like five minutes, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so the opportunity to be, to be like brought into um, God's presence in the midst of God's people, where we're all together proclaiming Jesus as King and worshiping him and saying, this is indeed the son of God. This is indeed the premier example of what it means to be human. This is indeed like how the triune God, father, son, and Holy spirit is at work in the world. Uh, and as we're actually wrapped up in that worship, we finally can get outside ourselves just yeah. a little bit, right? As we um, are encountering someone much more powerful, greater in every way than we are. So yeah. all those all those ways, scripture, yeah. service, worship. So I don't know that I have unique advice about, um, you know, right. how to grow in our allegiance to Jesus so that it produces glory. I point people to the classic spiritual disciplines, I suppose. Um, but yeah, those are some that have been important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I th I just think that's important. I, you know, we don't drift into discipleship, right? It doesn't happen on accident. It's got to be deliberate and intentional. Yeah, and, that's absolutely and, true. And so that active viewing, what, what can we intentionally, deliberately, actively do to make sure we're gazing on the glory of God in the face of Christ so that we can be transformed into his image from glory to glory, right? That's kind of the Absolutely. idea. Absolutely. Yeah. If we don't want to be disciples, we won't be. That's the bottom yeah. line. Like, yeah. yeah, you have to, I mean, your affection has to be changed. But I, I think sometimes the we don't let the right thing drive that, like that we are like we're like we kind of just try to like pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or something along those lines instead of like like vision has to drive that i i i firmly and, and dallas willard is really strong on this as a spiritual writer i love dallas willard yeah, yeah. but he's really strong on like you have to have a vision like right. that's what's going to drive your transformation because it's once you see how good life could be under king jesus that you'll actually have your affections changed and you'll begin to care You'll yeah. want to be a disciple and that will right. fuel you. If you don't get the fuel by having a vision of, of how good life could be under him through imagination, through like imagining what would it look like if this, if Jesus captured this area of my life right. to not be enslaved to this thing anymore, think what would my life look like? Like we have to be strong on the imagination front. Yeah. Um, and I know, think preachers could do a better job with that. Like, when as they communicate, painting the picture, the vision for people holding yeah, it before them of like absolutely when we take this truth and we put it into practice and we live, here's here's kind of the, where it's going to lead us. Here's where it's going to take us. And giving people that vision would really be yeah, helpful. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, no Dallas with his vision intention means right. Here's yep. the picture of where mm -hmm. we're going. Here's the intention of yep. now you got a plan to do that, and then here's some means that'll help you get yeah. there. Kind of yeah, yeah. He calls that his vim pattern. The vision yes. intention means yes. I yes. love love Willard. Yeah. And then one of the other things you mentioned was the importance of, of uh, glory refreshing or recharging together. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I, I've emphasized that thought about that quite a bit. In a lot of my conversations with people is because we live in a broken world, because so many people increasingly come from families that where they, they, they didn't grow up with a healthy picture of what it looked like to be human and all of that. They don't have a concrete picture. So you can read it in scripture, but until you can see it in a living human person, right? It's hard to live that out. It's imitate me as I imitate Christ, as Paul says. I, yeah. I, I think that's really important of, uh, you know, doing it together, having a concrete image of what does it look like 
to imitate and follow Jesus. And that's really what you're getting at with that communal aspect, right? Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, that's why that's, that's also the logic of why Paul without arrogance can say like, imitate me as I imitate Christ is because Paul understood like glory transformation. Like he understood that he was in the process of that and that it's a communal process. And that, you know, as he's gazing on Christ, if people are gazing on Paul, then that's actually going to bring them up. Right. Not that Paul's perfect, but like the, but that's actually the same. Paul actually should also be encouraged by his communities. And he says that he is right. That, that he longs to be with them. Why? Well, because Paul also needs to have that same thing happen to him, right. As he gazes upon his transformed congregations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, well, let me hold off on that question for a second. And one of the things that's at the heart of your writing on the gospel, you've done a lot of a lot of your books over the last handful of years have been on the gospel and themes related even to the topic of this particular book, why the gospel, you know, salvation by allegiance alone, gospel allegiance, gospel precisely. So you've done a lot of writing on this particular thing. And at the heart of that is um, the gospel that's preached in the New Testament is not the same gospel that's preached always today in our churches by Protestants, evangelicals, or whatever. Um, as you said, we tend to make it very human-centric, self-centered. I've got a problem, and I need to get that fixed. Jesus is the solution and all of that. Um, but one of the things you emphasize in in all your writings on this is, no, the, the centerpiece of the gospel is not Jesus died for my sins so that I can get you know be forgiven and go to heaven, but it's that Jesus is king right? Yes. Um, and and so if you were to articulate in, say, you have that moment where you're on a plane sitting next to someone, and it's clear they would be receptive to at least you giving the two-minute presentation of the gospel or whatever it is, right? You, you're having a conversation, and you can, you can lay out a brief, at least, presentation before you can maybe answer questions or go deeper into it. How would you summarize that? How would you s- summarize the gospel for people? Well, if I'm if I'm like trying to summarize the objective gospel, that's quite a bit different than how I would present it. Because I would okay. start if I was presenting the gospel, I would start with my own brokenness. Okay, like that's where I, I would start by saying, "Let me tell you a little bit more about my life. Like, to tell stories about like something that where I really screwed up, and then how Jesus brought restoration." So I wouldn't start actually with an objective presentation of the gospel. But once I did get around to that, I think that's what you were wanting me to get to. I would, if I was to give an outline of the gospel, I would say that it's about the Father sending the Son to take on human flesh. And this is a fulfillment of God's promises that he made long ago. So I would point and say, like, did you know, God, you know, fulfill prophecies in the Old Testament that that God would send a, a, a Messiah, a king who's going to rescue us. And that this king was uh, going to come in the line of David because God promised that David would have an eternal throne. Did you know God made that promise of an eternal throne? Um, and then I would talk about how Jesus um, is born in the line of David and he lives a life of obedience and then dies for our sins. And this is all something, again, that accords with the Old Testament pattern, that the Old Testament announces that there would be righteous suffering figures uh, who would in some way be rescued by God, uh, and that then he was buried, uh, then he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, uh, so that the resurrection is actually anticipated prophetically in the Old Testament as well, that God hears the righteous sufferer and delivers them to the land of the living. Um, And so then speaking beyond that, I would say, you know, that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. Um, And that's the hope that we have of our future resurrection from the dead. But I would say that uh, that the story doesn't stop there. Like after that, Jesus was installed at the right hand of God, and he's now ruling as the king. And that's really the climax of the good news is that we don't have to be king of our own lives anymore. 
um, that like, like a human is now ruling creation again, as God intended, like we've made bad choices. We continue to make sinful choices where we fall away from God, but we can actually align ourselves with the King and with the King's purposes now. And that's actually how God is saving us from our sins is through that alignment with Jesus as we give our loyalty or our allegiance to King Jesus. So I would summon somebody to allegiance to King Jesus. Um, and then as part of that, I would obviously say that involves a turning away from our sins, our current agendas, current ways of life, our non-Jesus ways, and trying to learn from him what it means to be fully human. Uh, and then as part of that, I would say, but you're, you're, you're not left alone. Like the Holy Spirit, the, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit as the next part of the gospel to help. Because if it's on our own, we will fall short, reminding them of the Spirit's help. And then one day God will come again to judge. That's actually part of the gospel as well. Um, that Jesus will come again to judge, excuse me, that Jesus will come again to judge. So anyway, that would be a full outline of the gospel. Yeah. 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 And in, I think it's in why the gospel, I know it's in gospel precisely where you list off the kind of those 10 parts of the, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the gospel. And, and I, um, I think it is important, you know, when, like you said, when, if you were sharing it, you could start with some of your shortcomings, mistakes, ways you failed. Right. Uh, and it seems like in the way you articulate the gospel, that the natural lead-in from that is, so if it were me talking, it's like, look, what well, before I met Jesus, I had a violent temper. My sister used to swear I was going to grow up to be a murderer. Funny thing that I actually teach the Bible now. My sister thought I was going to be a murderer. Why? Because I had such a violent temper, and I would get so angry so easily. And and the transition in your articulation of the gospel is, and I, I, when I'm in charge of my life, it does not go well. I make all sorts of mistakes. I'm 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 flawed. I'm broken. I'm messed up. And the good news is, is that I don't have to be in charge of my life. There's somebody else who can be in charge of my life, and that somebody else is Jesus. He is, he is the world's true king. He can be king of my life, and he can lead me into a better life. And that's really what you're getting at with mm-hmm. the way you articulate it: is that God sent Jesus, not just as savior, but God sent Jesus as king to mm-hmm. rescue you and deliver you and show you what it looks like to be a human being. And and when he rules your life, it's better for you than when you try to rule it yourself. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important to even go on from that and, and to like help people to realize like, it's actually not just for you. This is actually for other people too, in your life. Like, like if you don't embrace Jesus's way, you're going to keep hurting people. Yeah. Uh, because I think like maybe people um, today are maybe, especially non-Christians are not necessarily convinced by the idea. Okay. Like if I sin in some serious way, God's going to throw me into hell. Like they just aren't persuaded by that narrative anymore for whatever reason. Right. right? But they, they are aware that they are making mistakes. Like, and they would, most people would acknowledge that, that there is sin. Some wouldn't, but most would. Right. And, but almost everyone would like, if you ask, like, do you ever do something that harms somebody else? They're going to say, yes. Well, why does that happen? Right. Or do you do things that harm the environment, harm creation? Like, yeah. why does that happen? Like, do you realize that if we all start doing things the King Jesus way, maybe it could bring healing, not just to your own harm, like to self-harm, but also the harm you're causing other people. Do you know, yeah. like how much you're hurting your friends and your family, your children, like through these bad choices, like appeal to their, their concern. I think that's one thing that's interesting is sometimes people aren't as concerned for themselves because they don't believe the narrative anymore. Right. right. But they, but they actually get that they are causing harm and they can be concerned about other people. Right. And so if you say like the way that you're living, you're actually you're actually causing a lot of social harm. Right. Um, That actually can maybe catch their attention in a new way, too. Yeah. Uh, Or or creation's harm. Right. Some people, if they're really like drawn into the environmental agenda, um, maybe if we all started doing things the King Jesus way, it would actually be better for all of creation. 
Paul says the creation is groaning, right? right <laughs> Waiting right. for the full revelation of the sons of God in their glory. So yeah. um, the creation needs glory that can yeah. only come through the restoration that comes through King Jesus. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. And to recognize that we, if we start with sin, which get that it, it, People don't buy that narrative. They don't totally understand that anymore, but they do know the world is screwed up and broken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, just go on to Amazon and search self-help and you'll have pages and pages. Why? That's a tacit acknowledgement that the world is screwed up and broken. We humans are screwed up and broken. How do, how, how is that going to get fixed? Well, all our attempts are kind of keeping recycling the screw up. So maybe there's another way to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because I, yeah, the King Jesus gospel, as we come to understand it, it is, there is a form of self-help to it. Like we are helping ourselves. We do get better. Like right. we're, we're, we're on the process of healing. And that actually is, maybe that's helpful for the world to hear because some of the reason I think the world is rejecting the gospel, the nuns and the duns is because they aren't convinced that the narrative actually like brings healing. It's like, if, if your gospel is like, okay, like you send and like Jesus just forgives you, like, how does that actually bring healing to the world? How does that begin to undo harm? Right. They don't understand how this begins to undo actual harm that's happening in the world. And so it's not a convincing narrative to them either. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, okay, so what if I believe this and pray this prayer? So right. what if Jesus's blood allegedly covers me? If it doesn't actually change anything I can measure in the world, um, we have to be careful about that as Christians and say, no, it absolutely does change right. the world, right? Yeah. It will absolutely change you. If it's the real gospel you're embracing, real change will happen in your life and in the lives of your communities, your families. We have to kind of um, make sure that we land the plane in that way as we're sharing the gospel. With other yeah. People. No, I think that's so good and so important. I just even reflecting again, since I use myself as an example, I had a violent temper, met Jesus. My life has been changed. I've raised two kids. They're married. And my son, just the other day, he's 27, got two kids. We were talking, I don't even remember how it came up, but we were talking about parenting and raising kids. And he said, there was almost no yelling in our home when we were growing up. From a guy who had a violent temper, my earliest mm -hmm. childhood memory is the night my dad left, to raising my kids in a home where he doesn't hardly remember ever raised voices, but he remembers love accountability direction without yelling. And he's now passing that on to his kids. You know, it's like, that's yeah. real change. That's yeah, real change. Absolutely. You know, Amen. and it's it's important. So no, that's good. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I taught acts every semester for 12 or 13 years at the college. And so I've told people for years, I, you know, when trying to get them to reframe the gospel, that look through the book of Acts. What do they preach? They don't preach a plan of salvation. They preach uh, Jesus is king, risen from the dead, repent and believe the gospel, right? That's kind of what mm -hmm. they preach, you know, yeah. obviously more details than that. But in, in a nutshell, that's the theme. Jesus is the king and he's calling all people everywhere to uh, to allegiance to himself. And when we do that, it it that's that brings good to yeah. us and to the world. Yeah, the most explicit purpose of the gospel in the Bible is given twice. It's in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, and it's it's the obedience of faith, which we would gloss that, allegiant obedience or loyal obedience in all the nations yeah. uh, to King Jesus. That is the overt, like if you look at what is the, the clearest statement of the gospel's purpose in the Bible, it's allegiance to King Jesus in all the nations. Yeah, yeah. So with your busy life, seven kids, big family, ages 17 to five with the kids. You've been raising kids for a long time. You got a long time to go. 
How uh, how has allegiance to King Jesus shaped your family life and shaped the way you do your home and raise your kids and all of that? Oh, that's like such a big question. It's almost incalculable to try to answer. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know what I would be like without being a Christian, right? And increasingly over the years, I've come to understand that it is more and more about allegiance. But I was obviously living out allegiance before I even had that language. So I don't think I've ever had a, you know, family um, context, you know, when I was, uh, you know, with my wife and I, where we haven't uh, had that in mind in some way. Um, we do some things practically. Um, we, we're homeschooling our four youngest kids right now. The three oldest are in public school. Um, but my wife does scripture reading with the, the homeschool ones each morning. And then, you know, they also do um, usually apart from actual scripture reading, something of like a children's Bible, you know, kind of they work through children's Bible systematically. Um, so we're trying to lay the foundations in that way. And then in the evening, probably half the evenings as we're busy, um, half the times we can't get to, uh, we do scripture reading and a family read aloud um, about half the evenings. Um, so where we'll read, you know, work through systematically again, just reading out of the Bible. And then sometimes I explain a little bit, sometimes not, just depending on what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then um, we, we usually then... Um, do a family read aloud that could be anything from C.S. Lewis to J.R.R. Tolkien to the Wing Feather Saga with Andrew Peterson. I mean, you name it, we've done a lot. Um, but then we always do two. We do two worship songs together as a family, and then and then after that we do poems. But okay. um, but the two worship <laughs> poems songs, too, huh? yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, they, yeah. Oh, I know. I could probably quote fifty poems for you right now because I've done them for so long, and I know a ton of them, wow. um, which is kind of fun. But anyway, um, yeah. So yeah, the upshot of all that is that the kids actually lead us in worship, which is amazing now, and that's yeah. been a beautiful thing as time has gone on. Um, and so, yeah, I usually get to select the songs just for expedience, uh, expediency. So we're not always fighting over which songs we, we sing, but then they play them on the piano for us usually, wow. um, which is phenomenal and, and help lead yeah. us in worship because my wife and I don't play at all, but the kids all play. And so wow. they've, they've gotten to take ownership of allegiance in that way. Yeah, that's great. One of the ways you've described yourself, at least in some places, is as a praying theologian. Um, how does that, how does that, what does that look like? What do you mean by praying theologian? Well, I think some theologians aren't, um, they may be on the more academic end of things and are more about advancing ideas and not about, um, maybe, um, perfectly discerning how this is an important word for the church right now. Um, so certainly praying in that sense, I do pray also that if there's any foolishness or errors in what I'm writing, that God would help me to, uh, not say that nonsense or fix it as soon as possible. Um, so I do pray over my work, um, you know, but, I'll, but on, you know, in all honesty, I don't pray as much as I should, you know, I, I, it's like <laughs> all the rest do. of you <laughs> trying to, trying to do that. But, um, I am a praying theologian, but I'm, I'm not as prayerful as I wish I was. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's, mo that's mostly what I mean by it. I'm meaning yeah. that I, I'm trying to, to do my work in service of the, uh, to the Lord and for the church. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Well, Matt, thank you for taking some time to be on the Bible and Life podcast. Again, the book, the latest book is Why the Gospel, but Matt's written several other books, Gospel Allegiance and Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Gospel Precisely, as well as some more academic books on the Trinity and some of that. So if you're interested in checking out the latest book, Why the Gospel, you can find it on Amazon and a great read, simple read, not hard, not academic, not overly scholarly. So encourage you to read it as you rethink what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and believe in the gospel. So thanks, Matt, for being with me on The Bible in Life. Thank you, John.